An irrational fear gripped her. She didn't want to be seen. Not in here, not now, not like this. What are you doing? She let out a small sigh of relief when she saw who it was. Nothing to worry about there. I'm just having a quiet moment, spending some time alone. If you wouldn't mind, could you please help me? Helen tried not to frown. This was one of the inescapable realities of being in a church. There was always someone who needed help. An old woman wanting someone to run after her groceries, an altar-guild guy recruiting help with the cleanup, and it always seemed to come at the least convenient time. I don't know. Please, I really, really, really need your help. What is it? I saw something in the garden near the base of the tower, something strange and frightening. Helen pushed herself to her feet. Show me. She followed down the cobbled sidewalk toward the bell tower in one of the most isolated and secluded parts of the labyrinthine prayer garden. There were two marble benches flanking a small recess planted with honeysuckle and flowered hedges. Many of the parishioners had buried the ashes of loved ones here. A tall marble obelisk behind one of the benches stood as a memorial. So, over there, by the bench, Helen looked in the direction indicated. Someone had been digging. Signs of excavation were evident. An azalea bush had been all but uprooted. My God, Helen whispered. Had someone been digging up one of the graves? She had been at the funeral last week, and she knew this was where Ruth's sister's ashes had been buried. Why would anyone? Helen's eyes widened with repugnance and amazement. You? She turned just in time to see the shovel right before it struck. It hit her on the side of the head, knocking her sideways. The pain was excruciating. She felt as if her brain had been dislodged, her jaw shattered. Her legs crumbled, and she fell down onto one of the benches. She remained conscious, but just barely. She watched as the shovel came closer, then closer, then closer still. But why? Helen managed to gasp. Why not? Her assailant's hands clutched her throat with a strong, unbreakable grip. Helen felt her consciousness fading, and she knew that in a few short moments she would be dead. Was this the penance she had been seeking? Was this what it took to make her feel clean again? Her brain was too muddled to make any sense of it. As she felt her life slowly trickling away, her thoughts were not focused on these questions of theology and personal redemption. As she stared into the face of her killer, all she could think was, I can't believe it's you. I can't believe it could possibly be you. Chapter 2 Mr. Kincaid, please direct your witness to take the stand. Sir, my client is on trial. He can't be compelled to testify. The Fifth Amendment has absolutely no force or effect here. Please call your client to the stand. But, sir, it's a fundamental principle of the United States Constitution. The Constitution is not relevant. Sir, the Constitution is always relevant. 
It's the fundamental guarantee. Not today, it isn't. Now, call your witness. Sir, the protection against self-incrimination does not exist in this court. Mr. Kincaid, as I think you already know, this tribunal is governed by canonical law, not the United States Constitution. Now, please send your client to the stand without any further delay. Ben Kincaid closed his eyes, trying to mentally regroup. How did he get himself into these situations? After years of practicing law, he had finally managed to achieve some degree of competence in Tulsa's criminal courts. So what on earth was he doing at an ecclesiastical trial conducted under the auspices of the Episcopal Church of the Diocese of Oklahoma? Losing. That's what he was doing. Father Holbrook leaned forward, crinkling the flaps of his black robe. Again, Mr. Kincaid, I must ask you to call your client to the stand. Holbrook was an Oklahoma City priest who had been appointed to preside over the trial as judge. Fortunately, he had some legal experience. Even though the Constitution was not the controlling law, the federal rules of evidence were followed. The jurors were clergy and laypeople elected at the annual diocesan convention. And again, sir, Ben couldn't bring himself to call the man your honor, even though he was, technically speaking, a judge. I must insist... Ben felt a tugging at his arm. It's all right. I'll go. Ben peered down at the gray-bearded face of his client and priest, Father Daniel Beale. I don't think that's wise. Do you know what could happen to you up there? Of course I do. There was a small but discernible tremble in his voice. Though he was in his mid-fifties, at the moment he looked much older. But the judge carries the weight of canonical authority, and he has called me to speak. I must comply. I don't think that's a good idea. The whole reason I submitted to this process was to clear my name. I can't very well do that by refusing to take the stand. But you don't know what will happen. I don't know what will happen. And I'll just have to have faith. Ben held him back. Father, if you go up there, I can't promise you a good result. A slight smile crossed the priest's lips. Ben, you're a fine lawyer. But when I spoke about having faith, I wasn't talking about you. Ben started to protest, but Beale was already on his feet and heading toward the folding chair at the right hand of the dais of adjudicators. While Beale was sworn in, Ben's partner, Christina McCall, leaned across the defense table. "'Isn't there anything we can do about this?' she whispered. "'You're the legal scholar. You tell me. Haven't you been reading up on the Episcopal Constitution and canons?' Christina brushed her flowing mane of strawberry blonde hair behind her shoulders. "'Yes, but for all its 218 pages, it doesn't say all that much.' Compared to the rules and regulations governing federal courts, it's nothing. I think it's intended to leave the presiding judge great discretion. Here in the ecclesiastical courts, the judge can do pretty much whatever he wants, and usually does. Folly de grandeur. Which means Beale is going on the stand whether we like it or not. Think he'll hold up? Ben shrugged. Keep your fingers crossed. Christina arched an eyebrow. Wouldn't it be more appropriate to say a prayer? 
Beale lowered himself into a chair that was obviously too small for him, adding to his already evident discomfort. Father Holbrook was just to his left. Flanking him on the other side were the stenographer, the jurors, and the canon of the ordinary, otherwise known as the bishop's assistant, Harold Payne. Father Beale seemed worried, and with good reason. A man of God, since he was twenty-two, it must have been an unprecedented shock to Beale's system to find himself sitting before a bishopric tribunal on the charge of conduct unbecoming a priest. The evidence that had been adduced already by previous witnesses was substantial, and at times shocking. Malice toward parishioners, public denial of the virgin birth, questioning whether Jesus rose from the dead, allowing radical political groups to meet at the church. And there was another memorable allegation of Beale's conduct unbecoming a priest. Murder. When did you last see Helen Conrad? Father Fleming asked. Fleming was a stout, basso profundo lawyer priest from Kansas City who had been brought in to represent the complainants. In effect, he was the district attorney. In the prayer garden, Father Beale answered, sprawled across a stone bench, the right side of her face covered with blood, a dirty dish rag wedged in her mouth, her skin a ghastly gray, flies buzzing around her corpse. Father Fleming ran his fingers across the top of his head, as if brushing back the hair that had not graced his scalp for many years. I mean, when did you last see her alive? At the vestry meeting the night before. As Ben had learned, the vestry was the governing body of St. Benedict's Episcopal Church, where Beale was currently priest and Ben was a member of the choir. The vestry, led by the senior warden, oversaw all the administrative aspects of the...